Hello and welcome to Self Studies, a podcast that explores how identity can inform a person's lived experiences and mental health. I'm Laura Duper, and today I'll be talking with April Grigsby about understanding and managing privilege, identity formation at the macro, meso, and micro levels, and negotiating a hyphenate identity. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. My name is April Grigsby. I'm a psychotherapist working at Alma, and I am my mother's daughter. I'm one of five children from a single parent home. I'm a first generation black woman in America whose mother's from the Caribbean and whose father is from West Africa. My pronouns are she and her. So I'm a part of the melting pot of the African diaspora in Brooklyn, massive. And I'm also a part of a tribe of like high achieving minorities who utilize programs in order to leverage very expensive education in the independent systems of elite East Coast schools. So my journey and my identity has become very closely tied with being institutionally driven and also resistance driven because of the hegemony. When you are entering into spaces that aren't created for you. So my doctor program, my Ivy League degrees, even my boarding school is not created for black girls. And so I very much think of myself as a black girl and I'm keenly aware of where I've had to enter into spaces as a black girl. Thank you for sharing your identities and some of your story. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you got to where you are and how you got to be a psychotherapist in Brooklyn and and a little bit more about your story, whatever you'd like to share with us. Sure. I am a licensed clinical social worker. First, due to my empathetic nature, we are living care bearers, but I chose social work due to what is a far more accessible value and insight into social justice than other types of mental health trainings available. When I was 16, I lived in South Africa for three months to volunteer at the Vela School which is in the area Umtata that Nelson Mandela is from and was one of the first non-Bantu schools available. Bantu was apartheid, everything undignified for Africans. So it was a fully resourced competitive school for African children. I've always been service driven and my very fancy boarding school funded it after I wrote and won an essay contest. And also after university, I lived in Ghana for a year. And I have no family from those spaces, but I was deeply moved by the counselors that I observed who would be social work counterparts in Ghana. That was a International Federation of Women Lawyers. They don't have, oh, back then, they didn't have pro bono services, kind of illegal aid. So it was not-for-profit NGO work to provide legal services for the disenfranchised in Ghana. And I probably should have gone to law school like a good child of immigrant parents and made some real money. But I, the way that they were so present with the clients, what we would now use the language of cultural competency, even within Ghana, There's diversity by language, by religion, by tribe, and it really sparked something inside of me. So I've always had a service-driven life and a career. I've always been a helping professional. That's amazing. And I love the way that that has just, I mean, that has been a thread throughout your life to see service-driven in every way, it sounds like. And I am curious about kind of your particular area of focus. I know a little bit from seeing your Alma profile and from what we know here at Alma, but I would love to hear you talk a bit about who your clients are um, typically or who you who you like to work with and kind of what led to that area of focus for you. It's twofold. So I choose now to focus after having a very varied career working with largely diverse populations of New York City as a social worker. You know, New York is like Noah's Ark. It's to everything God made up in this bitch, right? <laughs> like it is the training ground for when you want to get to understand the other, New York is a great place to do so. But in my psychotherapy practice, I've increasingly been focused on double consciousness of identity in the U.S. as described by W.E.B. Du Bois and decolonizing the mind as described by Franz Fanon. So I focus on high achieving immigrants, first generation college attendees, and people of African descent who as described by Dr. Kimberley Crenshaw, are negotiating their intersectionality. There are these 
intersecting identities and they are very much living within the hyphen. And so what it does it mean to be negotiating your home culture, language, religion, and then step into corporate spaces, fancy institutions where they are winning and achieving by all outside external measures, but really are grappling with the weight of being the only or the other in the room and balancing these two competing identities, sometimes three and four. The other part of my practice is just, you know, having a fancy education. So, of course, I can treat for very traditional concerns around anxiety and depression. I do enjoy couples work and I love a neurotic New Yorker. (laughs) So there's just a part of it that is built into being a psychotherapist. New York is a very lonely and isolating place. Obviously, lots of pandemic work has exacerbated how people are trying to cope with the isolation. So there's a pragmatic part to it, kind of very general And then once again, it's diverse just because New York is diverse. And then there's this identity-focused work that I've been increasingly focused on. That's amazing. And so many important spaces that you occupy and that you provide insight to and care for. And I'm just really thankful for the work that you're doing. It's really amazing. And and just that you're here sharing with us more about it. I noted that on on your profile and reading more about you, just that is such a fascinating place of navigating the hyphen is, is one of the things you say on your, on your Alma profile and what you just spoke to. And in previous conversations for this podcast series, we have, we've talked about the work of Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw and, and that intersectionality and, and, and occupying multiple identities. And I'm curious how, you would maybe define intersectionality and and its importance in these conversations about identity. I've talked to a few other people about, you know, what are kind of the pros of having a common identifier of, of fitting into a certain community? And then what are kind of the shortcomings of fitting into that community? And maybe being able to fully describe your identity. Is, are there any short shortcomings to that of, of ha- having these monoliths of identity? Mm-hmm. So I think Dr. Crenshaw's point is that no one really experiences it as a monolith, right? And what happens is we have very specific power narratives in the U.S., right? Slavery was a peculiar institution. If we were in Ireland, the conversation would far likely be more focused on religion, because we know what the history of Catholics versus Protestants have been for that region, well, for that country. Well, in the U.S., because race is so dominant, we tend to line the rest of them up after we negotiate race. And as people have asserted these other identities and have insisted, like the Black trans movement that was given a lot of voice in, uh, within the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 and moving forward, They're no longer, people are no longer being complacent about allowing the hegemony of the U.S., the historical approach of the U.S. to race first and everything second. And so therefore, when you find yourself being limited, it is because that space has not been affected by these fresh initiatives and these fresh perspectives. But when you look closely at how people have lived, they've always been negotiating it, maybe not at the macro level, but in their institutions and in their households and within their families. And so there are spaces where people are claiming it actively. I'm thinking about the Afropunk culture within Brooklyn, where they're like, yeah, we're Black, but we also like metal. We also like piercings. We like to rock out. And we're not going to be apologetic about that anymore, which is kind of culture, hobby, fun, identity driven. And then there's been debate within the Black community always about what should our approach be to inclusion, to freedom, to dignity in this society. And the Black middle class having very specific kind of hegemony aligned value systems of we should do this through education, through building our wealth. And then you see the divide, even when you look back at the civil rights movement versus the black power movement. So I think that it's always been bubbling under the surface. I think that Dr. Crenshaw has probably taken a prominence with the idea of intersectionality, not because she invented it or coined it or no one else ever thought of it. She just very eloquently laid it out for us. But now 
also thinks about the ways in which we can operationalize that and what does it mean to be inclusive and not ask people to rank within themselves, which can lead to a fractured sense of self, one identity versus another. Thank you for articulating that for us. I think that those are such important points. And of course, we, I think what you said, just this bubbling under the surface and really putting language to it is just, is so helpful and such a helpful conversation to have. And I'm curious in your work as a, as a social worker and what you said earlier of being drawn to social work specifically because of its focus on social justice and, and looking more at the societal kind of macro uh, issues. And then also as a clinician treating the individual, how have you kind of seen these macro and I know that this is a huge question, so answer it however you would like. These macro, um, huge societal things and inequities, how have you seen those play out in the individuals that you see and in that what you kind of said, that fractured sense of identity? Is that something that you find in, in many of your clients? Absolutely. So I'd like to give a shout out to social work because I think more so than many of the other types of mental health training, our profession, because we have focused on social justice as a part of our ethos, it has given us language and interventions that speak to this more readily. Not only in our formal training where we do study policy, we do look at group work and community level work, but also even you can bring this into your practice as a psychotherapist. So for the clinicians out there, think about the macro, meso, and micro level of identities for your clients. The macro may be easily accessible to you because they're going to speak about race or gender or their profession in the U.S., whether or not they're immigrant, whether or not they're U.S. born, and all of the privilege and challenges within there. But then the meso level, that can be household, that could be professionally driven if their identity as an artist or as a lawyer is very salient to them. They're in a corporate grind. They're working with the disenfranchised. They're a part of the system in terms of they're cops, they're firefighters, they're union workers, and that sense of camaraderie that you have in these type of professions. Well, you aren't going to necessarily understand all of who they are, but by understanding and trying to approach it at first from an ecological perspective, even before you approach it in that psychoanalytical, it gives you the opportunity to have them help you understand what's also acting on them. It prevents you from making mistakes when you move from a place of a vacuum and don't understand that this individual that's in front of you is also set into larger contexts. And then for all of us, not only the clinician managing privilege in the room, but also the we individual human beings, then we get the chance to say what I need and what I want and what has been your individual struggles. And so sometimes you may not have to pay attention too much to the macro and meso. They may quickly tell you, you know, yeah, you know, my family's from the Midwest. I've come here and it's been a difficult transition to New York, but now I have it down. I'm making it in corporate finance. I know that it sucks. And then that micro might really be very traditional attachment work, very traditional trauma work because of what they've gone through. But you don't miss a note. They get to bring in how important, how salient is it for them to be an immigrant, to be LGBTQ, to be a married person, for example. And being able to see the micro, it isn't only your responsibility, it empowers the client to be able to speak to that. And that's really the way that you negotiate social justice all the way down to the micro level by not asking people, think about our basic work when we are challenging cognitive distortions. When you hear someone say, I'm so blank and the blank is a negative and they are very hard on themselves. Well, where is that pressure stemming from? Of course, you're going to do some traditional mirroring work, shout out to all of the techniques and modalities that help us understand people's psyche and what they've experienced in their interpersonal lives from beginning from children. But then are you asking them to adopt coping strategies and coping mechanisms that don't speak to all of who they are? What is the balance between someone coming from a culture that's very group oriented and you saying, oh, well, you know, Maria, Kwame, Xingli, 
I'm hearing that you're making a lot of money based on your successes and your family's expecting you to send a lot of money back home and pay for your cousins to also be able to participate in activities. And maybe you should assert boundaries and say to them, no, well, that person will individually let you know what about their culture, what about how they negotiate their identity will not allow them to say no right away, because there is this collective identity that their particular culture is invested in. And what is the cost to them to shirk that? Even as we try to empower them that they have individual worth, that's how you get st stay away from imposing Western norms. And then similarly, when the person's the only in the room at their job and what it feels like to develop that level of excellence and resilience, being able to distinguish between Imposter syndrome is built into finance. It's built into corporate America. It's a part of the grind. It's what white men do to each other. So if you're at Goldman Sachs, if you're at fancy law firm, you're going to feel a certain amount of imposter syndrome because it is an endemic to the environment. And then there is this way that the otherness that you're experiencing where people, because they are constantly reacting to your identity as the other, can also shake your confidence. And so which of this is the stresses of your individual life and which of this is institutionally driven and therefore may trigger a greater oppressive dynamic. And that's really the way you approach social justice and mental health, particularly when you're working with privileged clients who can afford psychotherapy and may not have very pragmatic disenfranchisements. They're not involved in criminal justice systems, poor health care, poor education, and so on. They've navigated and achieved past that. That's how you're able to center it so that you respect the person. You don't treat Obama the same way as you treat someone who's now segueing out of prison, but you do recognize how they may still be facing the same systems of oppression when they walk down the street as a Black man in America. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like there's a million questions I could ask you after that answer, and you just really have so many of my wheels turning. You brought up privilege there at the end, and I'm curious if you could just even define privilege for us. I know that that's something that um, it's obviously a word that is very much in our vernacular and 2021 America and obviously not for the first time, but feels like it is more pervasive or, or being misused perhaps more often. I'm not sure if, if you would agree with that, but if you would, wouldn't mind just defining it for how you see it and kind of how you see it relating to identity. Absolutely. And you're right. I think that all of the social justice work we've been doing nationally and the responses we've had to the backlash from that as evidenced in the behaviors and the violent outbreaks in our society right now is giving more emphasis to privilege because as we move from de jure to de facto in terms of incorporating and giving people dignified participation in our society, equal privilege before the law, equal rights, not just in the court systems, but in your safety in your ability to claim your spaces and you're having the good life here. Privilege is on front street because it's far more nebulous and it is also, there are ways in which we confer privilege to each other. So after you get the laws and the policies in order, what are the ways in affirming your humanity that I individually act on your privilege to just be treated like a human being? I define privilege very broadly as your advantage in that space, in that time. So you can understand easily how privilege can shift in a room minute by minute. But historically, it's been dominated not only by very specific groups, but certain domains of privilege confer more power. Having the law responsive to your needs is obviously a significant advantage. In the Black community, there's such thing as light skin privilege. My skin is light because my ancestors were raped on the transatlantic slave trade, period, right? While we were on the plantation, it meant getting raped more often because if you were light-skinned, you were in the house, you were close to the master, you were more accessible to be raped. But it has persisted in our community because of the legacy of slavery and colonialism, how we're still grappling with Eurocentric values of Black beauty and how that affects us. We're certainly not the only ones, but it happens in America through this very specific history. And so it gives a greater visibility. There is social capital in being light-skinned in the Black community. 
that social capital can't get you a bank loan necessarily, but it can get you a greater visibility if you would like to navigate Hollywood, if you'd like to be famous on Instagram. And so where and when your privilege kicks in, if it is a powerful space, if it's a domain that can mean life or death, access and resources for your community, or even an advantage that you can leverage in the moment, it makes a difference than when you've been shut out of privilege. So it's important to recognize privilege as it's happening in the room, how it works. And even when you're treating people, collaborating with people, recognizing that how we have, may have privilege in that moment that they don't. I'm heterosexual, I'm heteronormative. That's also privilege. I was born in the US, that's also privilege. I'm able-bodied, I speak English, that's also privilege. But we all know race is king in America. So as a black woman in America, there's certain ways that I'm disenfranchised and even my fancy education can't necessarily short those gains that other groups have because they've had race privilege for so long. So you recognize your privilege, you recognize what it confers on you, and then you work to manage that privilege. That's all you can do. You can't reject your privilege outrightly unless you talk discussing class privilege and you can certainly give up your money. But every other identity-based privilege in our society, you cannot relinquish. People still see it. No matter how enlightened I try to be as a Black woman in loving the full spectrum of brown and darker skins in my community, I walk into the Black room as a light-skinned Black woman. And so therefore, acknowledging the struggle of what other Black women, how they've been subjected, how they've been treated because of skin color allows me to manage it to the best of my ability and not provoke other people's trauma narrative. So what are your privileges? How do they work to your advantage in that space and in that time? And all of this is intimately related to what we just previously discussed in terms of the intersectionality of identity. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel from, from my perspective that there's some pushback from the kind of the majority of perhaps those who experience the term white privilege as a uh, pejorative mm -hmm. and perceive that as kind of like what you said, there's a pushback of like, I, I want to disassociate from that, or I don't want to, I'm not racist, or I'm not this. And it's like, there's, there seems to be quite a bit of pushback on that. And I'm just curious mm -hmm. in that. And of course, like, I don't mean to ask you to speak for that entire, and I don't, and I don't mean to generalize or put everybody into one camp, um, including myself, of course, but I, I am curious just what you feel is important on all of us recognizing our privilege and at every level, why that is important to those with more privilege and those with less privilege in America. And maybe why that pushback is happening and maybe why it is important that, like you said, privilege is something you manage. It's not something that you can actually disassociate from, but how, how can we manage it better? It's true. And you see the way in which you feel uncomfortable even posing the question. I think that the audience just hear it that way, that we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. Like even you and trying to pose the question and making sure, wait, I don't want to perpetuate any stereotypes. I don't want to project anything onto April. I don't want to overstep my boundaries and even how I represent, you know, this question as a white person asking it. All of that is role modeling for everyone else what it is for us to manage our privilege. It is to get comfortable with the fact that we're going to be uncomfortable. No one wants to give up their advantage, even if you weren't aware of it. No one wants to be accused of being a blank, filling the blank as a negative. And so it is this idea of we can't learn from each other if they're not willing to sit through the uncomfortable conversations, but also understanding that that change can't be seen as optional. Right. So I'm definitely for having an uncomfortable conversation if you're in an interracial relationship, if you're in a workspace on a team, if you're leading somewhere at your job right now and you're like, wow, there's a lot of anti-racist pedagogy, curriculum, policies coming in from HR. I don't want to make a misstep. Even being able to speak to that and say to your staff, hey, I'm learning as well. That is empowerful. 
It is powerful to let people know we're going to respond to our discomfort with empathy for what it has felt like for those who have not had privilege to finally get their say at the table. Because the reality is, in the identity politics talent show, when people are now getting to the mic at two o'clock in the morning and they've been waiting for their turn to speak their journey and their process and what they need in order to feel actualized in their identity and have full inclusion in America, it's gonna get hostile. It's gonna get emotional. It's gonna be overwhelming. And we kind of have to sit and brace ourselves in it when it's our turn to be confronted by the other who we are just like, but I, it wasn't me. It was my ancestors. Or I didn't do that to you. That is what it means for us to get through this phase because this conversation is not over. We're continually evolving in our identity politics. And so, no, right now it happens to be white privilege. I predict the next phase of it is the conversations that people of color are not having amongst themselves. If you ask me in my personal life, when I've experienced racism, I've experienced far more racism from other people of color who came into the U.S., looked at the spectrum of race, saw that it was skewed towards white persons being of power, and continued to absorb and project stereotypes into who I was as a Black woman because it was just safer to do so. What was their commitment to seeing me as a holistic person? Well, those conversations are coming just in the same way there are conversations happening between sexual minorities right now where they're recognizing that only certain groups have been able to really get representation. That is the nature of change. That is the nature of inclusion. So step one, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And step two, pressing forward. Because ultimately, you can't leave your rights, your livelihood, your safety, your resources. You can't skirt away from it because someone else is squeamish. Someone else is self-conscious and defensive. You have to press forward. You got to get it. We have to do the difficult thing. We have to continue to advocate and agitate, but knowing that it will provoke others and being girding yourself for that, for what you have to relinquish while managing your privilege and also what it means to be the person representing that and how that can label you in the room. Thank you for putting language to that. And I think that's the perfect way to put it. And obviously, I couldn't hide my uncomfortability in even posing the question. You're right. And I think that that is case in point of getting comfortable in what is uncomfortable and a lot of just navigating these conversations for the first time, maybe collectively and maybe interpersonally for a lot of people. And um, as things move more into the collective consciousness and as we are talking more about racial inequity as a, as a whole in our country and then navigating that on every other level, like you said. Um, also, I love how, how you put that and how you put there is a power dynamic in every in every setting and there's privilege in every moment and navigating that and managing that there's ways that you relinquish your power there's ways that you you are empowered and i, I just i think that that is such an important way to put it as it is moment to moment while also encompassing th- these larger more macro historical systemic inequities and and privileges in in this country. I want to stay a little bit longer in this idea of managing privilege um, since I do think it is so important to be having these conversations and I'm so grateful for your insight and wisdom into this and yeah I'm thinking about how and I've talked to a few other people about this and um when you identify as a minority or occupy multiple minority identities yeah, how you're managing your place in America specifically and how there are things that you, acculturation essentially, and how, um, you know, I've talked to, to a clinician about the immigrant experience and talked about more of uh, an occupying like a third culture identity. And I'm curious in your work or if anything personally that you'd like to share, thinking about what parts of your identity that you do acculturate and to to be more like the hegemony and to be more like the 
the majorities in this country. And I know that you work a lot with high achieving people of color and immigrants and first generation Americans. And so I'm curious just how this conversation around what your culture is and then how you're adjusting to the majority culture in in America and and how that kind of dissonance and I don't mean to project dissonance because I don't know, but how have you experienced that in your clients or as an individual yourself who occupies these multiple identities? What do you give up um, in order to, for lack of a better term, fit in, which, you know, of course, is more nuanced than how I'm saying it. But I'm curious just how that has played out in in your client relationships or in your personal experience. I am not from a small part of the Brooklyn Massive. It is a group that's increasingly growing because when you think about quote-unquote Black at these privileged East Coast elite schools, the face of that Black person is a person whose parents have been born outside of the U.S. They are either arrived when they were very young and raised in the U.S. They have immigrated to access education from the Caribbean or West Africa, mostly, but Africa in general as well. And so there's the phrase, quote unquote, regular Black, (laughs) that we've been using within the community to indicate a Black person whose parents are Black American. And obviously, this is also informed by the East Coast having more cities where immigrants have settled from these regions. Obviously there are growth patterns happening, lots of Nigerians in Atlanta, lots of Nigerians in Texas now taking over Houston. It's great to see the culture spreading. There are various push and pull factors that inform people's immigrant patterns. So there is diversity even within not just country, but Are you a part of the Liberians who were resettled because of the 1990 civil war in Minnesota or in Staten Island? That makes for a very different immigrant group than high achieving Nigerians who come and access STEM professions. And so the acculturation that I have experienced was largely made easy by the fact that I didn't have to negotiate in isolation. If people are coming over from West Africa or the Caribbean and going into the Midwest and into cities that are not diverse, it makes for a far more isolating experience than if you are coming from Brooklyn, where we have the Caribbean Day Parade on Eastern Parkway on Labor Day weekend, and it's two million of us listening to our music, eating our food, hearing our accents, and completely aware of what it is to be traveling back and forth from the U.S. to your respective islands in order to earn economic power. There was a space for me to understand myself. And so there have been waves of immigration from people of African descent to the U.S. In the 1970s, it started off with African brain drain. In the 1990s, you had far more people fleeing. And African brain drain was in response to the fall of colonialism, which in some cases gave rise to dictatorship. But it also gave rise to a group of highly elite, competitive, kind of, they call it the African brain drain because it's the best of the African scholars, intelligentsia, who came for opportunity. So as the immigrant profile shifts, so do you see people's ability to acculturate. In the 1960s, when you know you have the Borico culture here in New York, but a lot of Puerto Ricans, when they came over, did not speak Spanish to their children because they wanted them to better speak English to survive. And obviously there are waves of that where people start to reclaim their language, reclaim their culture, wear their traditional dress. You're in Harlem and 116th street, and you're going to hear the Francophone African languages when you go to the here Braiders and there's a mosque there. You don't have to now not wear your hijab. You can choose to wear West African dress or wear Jordans, or probably both. And so as we make greater spaces for immigrant com- communities to start to assert and make colorful these spaces within the US, what we have to do for acculturation changes. Are you from a small group of people or are you from a large group of people who have been here for a while and who have made some gains for themselves? And so it has been an understood 
dynamic for us. And there's been a very strong commitment to how do I keep hold of what's valuable, important from my family, even as I negotiate these American. And then if you have a fancy education, predominantly white spaces. And there's a whole other kind of dynamic happening with these first generation and immigrant children in HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, where now someone says, oh, I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha. And they happen to be, you know, also West African, which was not the case in the 80s and kind of the traditional images that you might see in a Spike Lee film, for example. So it's a fluid dynamic and it's not new. I'd like to give a little shout out to one of my mentors, Dr. Robin Hayes, who wrote this beautiful book, Love for Liberation. It's about the African independence Black power movement and its synergy with the African diaspora. So when Stokely Carmichael and the Black Panthers and so many persons went over and they were interacting with African liberation leaders, including Kwame Nkrumah, um, of who was the first president of Ghana. And these conversations go way back. Like <laughs> we wear dashikis and dashikis come out of Tanzania, right? Now, not that they don't have them in West Africa, but it's just this small group who went over there and was learning about what the struggles were in Tanzania for liberation and came back and kind of influenced the rest of us because technically that's not the most West African thing that we brought over in terms of our African survivals within the culture. So I think that for various immigration groups, uh, immigrant groups rather, that there's going to be a different story. There's such thing as an ABC, American born Chinese person, and what it's like for them to negotiate identity. So for my group, we were definitely fully aware that we were trying to survive in America. There was a language for it. There was a space for it. We have colonized Brooklyn <laughs> and there are, you know, enclaves for various Blacks groups in New York City and in other places. I know that there is Carabana in Canada, for example, because there's so many Caribbean immigrants there. Obviously, you have people in London and in England also experiencing this as well. Many of us have cousins who one family member decided to immigrate to London versus New York. Florida has so many Haitians in Miami. So you see the various ways that this evolves and it's a good place to be. I think there are a lot of conversations that we also need to have within the Black community about African versus Caribbean versus Black American and the successive progeny of how we are intermixing, how are we supporting each other? How are we able to recognize the issues that each community uniquely brings as the longer you stay in the US, you go from being Nigerian, Igbo, to all of a sudden people just referring to you as Black, because of your skin color and how that can feel like erasure. And they can often be resistant to it. People who have immigrated here and say, no, I am Jamaican. I, many, many Black persons in Amer uh, Brooklyn will say, no, I'm Jamaican, meaning I'm a Jamaican raised in America or I'm a first American born of Jamaican parents because they don't want to just have their identity be monolithic and flat and one-dimensional. Because when they cook at home, they listen to reggae, they, they cook curry. So there are so many ways in which we negotiated back and forth. I very much benefited from having an enlightened mother who was so open to understanding the diaspora. And that's why I'm a Pan-Africanist. And that's why I deeply believe in these type of conversations and the work that I'm doing. My mother's from Trinidad and she is almost radical in her choice of my father who is Liberian. And I think that that work and those conversations have to continue because as the black middle-class shifts from being traditionally black American to being this Pan-African identity, then we have to understand what is valuable and applicable about the civil rights movement and the black power movement and what values resilience, history, strengths that the immigrant population within the Black community are bringing to the table as well and where they feel connected or disconnected from that narrative. It's an important conversation that is connected to acculturation that I do bring to my work and that it would, you know, really serve any clinician to, to ask, you know, if someone says, oh, my mother's from here, my father's from here. Okay, well, what does that mean? How does that help me understand who you are? Do you think that that's going to be relevant to the clinical work that we do? Right. It's so important to all of the points that you bring up. And I think, I think bringing up erasure and um, 
and this flattening of identity. I think the those phrases really resonated as as I yeah I I can only imagine how that would feel like that and how there's there is so much complexity and and nuance to how we identify ourselves that if we feel as if we are being perceived one way and it is not it's not encapsulating who we truly are how damaging that can can be and i am i'm curious as we continue to talk about identity how much do you see in in your work do you feel like our identity is built around how we view ourselves and how much of it is based on how others perceive us and a second question to that i would ask is how does code switching relate to that and how how we present ourselves in different settings and in different situations and i know that that obviously code switching is something that everybody does but in the work that you do and in working with clients who do occupy multiple identities and often multiple minority identities how do you see their identity is shaped by those experiences of being perceived and of presenting I'll address code switching first. Code switching with choice can allow a person to express certain ideas and norms that are not permissible inside of their setting of origin. Sometimes children from certain environments want to geek out and not be called out by their peers. So it can lead to a fractured sense of self if you do it out of survival for too long and you never get to assert your own self. The code switching that is only informed by trying to access the institutions and the resources of the dominant that has gatekeeping for behavior. And this is survival driven. And if you have no ability to at some point choose your setting and choose to enter into a space where you can express something freely because you want to code switch, then it can often lead to burnout. It can often lead to resentment. It can be quite literal, code switching sometimes, as when women of African descent have to wear their hair in Eurocentric styles, like straight or in weaves, instead of braids or natural styles to match to the corporate environment. It can also be far more pervasive when you're code switching in order to fit into the dominant paradigms. For example, a lot of Asian Americans who are being taught about humility in their home as a value in the culture and then at work are being unfairly labeled as passive or introverted because they don't want to laud their own accomplishments, that they don't necessarily see the person who's the loudest in the room as the most powerful in the room, but that might be what corporate America is telling them. So code switching is a positive when it helps you to get what you want and to become more safe. And it is harmful when it starts to erase the self and when you can't put it down. This is important to this idea about how we view ourselves versus how others perceive us because it should be a person-by-person formula. We can't always dictate. We understand the macro considerations of identity politics in the U.S., but there's pushback. We're no longer in a place in our society where people are not taking back their power. We can separate this question into public and private self and understand how that creates a sense of safety for the person We are having these discussions right now on these type of podcasts. And millennials have long shifted the conversation, for example, about like what work looks like. You know, shout out to Mark Zuckerberg who said, I am going to be filthy rich and do it in a t-shirt and a jeans. I mean, okay, don't get me wrong. When Congress called him in, he certainly bought a proper suit. But just this idea of I don't have to be effective by dressing like Don Draper. People of color have long had spaces where we were selective about who and what we allow to indoctrinate us. For example, there's an association of black psychologists. The ABCI, they're aware of the APA. They are all board certified psychologists, very fancy education. They're able to do the Freudian ego psychology with the best of them. But they are also looking at how to work within Africa-centric practice to fill in and to meet the needs that maybe Western hegemony psychology fails to do so. So we have the opportunity to find our tribe and how others perceive us is to 
insulate ourselves from where that's going to be noxious for us. And how we view ourselves has to happen in a place where we are empowered. So think to the metaphor of the ugly duckling. That story is not just about beauty, although it serves that purpose, because in all honesty, maybe that duck that was really a swan goes over to the swan lake and realizes, oh, I'm still just like a three on a swan scale. (laughs) The story is more about finding your tribe. Who moves you? Who understands you? Where do you feel normalized? And so when we think about this building our identity and how we view ourselves versus how we allow or understand people to perceive us, it is critical that we never measure ourselves on a scale that is not meant to include us. If you would like to be a surgeon, yeah, I'm going to need you to go to medical school, get your residency on, finish the fellowship because you can't cut people and say, oh, I reject what the American Medical (laughs) Association says. Nope, you need your board certification. Okay, don't go to jail. But when it comes time to how you define your beauty, how you define how you participate in love, how you define how you participate even in motherhood, there are ways in which you have to know these are my safe spaces because I can be seen in this room and in this space. And that is critical for a healthy sense of self. That completely makes sense and is so thoughtful in how you phrase that. And I think so important for us to understand the difference in in what code switching means and the privilege within within it and what is voluntary and what is involuntary. And I just want to leave it to you if there's anything else that you would like to to say that we didn't get a chance to touch on yet. I know, of course, we can't wrap this up with a bow. There's so many more conversations to be had, but would love to just hear any uh, more thoughts that you have. Well, we are on the Alma podcast and there are people who are interested in getting their mental health needs. And right now, people of color are being underserved. It's just not enough of us. It's just not enough clinicians of color. And you are not obligated if you are happen to fit into that identity to address the issues of identity that may emerge. You may want to do very clinically driven work, such as working with people who are experiencing high level psychiatric issues, psychosis people who have survived rape and other types of trauma. You may want to focus on bereavement work with people who um, have lost loved ones to cancer. So there isn't necessarily this idea that just because you're encountering a clinician of color that they may have this as their focus the way that I do. There's also reversely, I would not want to put it out into the world as we wait for more diversity and the gains of institutions decolonizing so that there can be more qualified clinicians of color because they have to be trained as we can't always wait for that to happen. So you may have to work with a person who is unlike you in getting your mental health and your emotional needs met. Be bold and be brave in saying, this is what I need. I need you to believe me. I need you to believe me that I wasn't paranoid, that I was being marginalized at work. I did experience that microtransgression. And if that person has enough empathy, which we're all trained on, regardless of our orientation or modality as clinicians. If they have enough regard, what we call the unconditional positive regard to create a safe holding environment, they will believe you even if they don't fully understand it. And it's okay to need that from your clinician. And it's okay to be a person who has certain types of privilege and be still working on it. When someone who sits down in your chair, and it may not always be race, but who is the other from you. And if you can assign yourself, commit to being comfortable while you are uncomfortable, to fumble through and to get it, you will then see that that shared humanity is going to be the most dominant dynamic in the room. We can't possibly anticipate everyone. You just can't. New York is way too diverse. America is way too diverse. The world is too diverse. There are groups who their country hasn't fallen apart yet. They're not here. They haven't been here to explore. We have very specific groups of people from certain countries. That's why it's important to say African and not just label out one group, even though I didn't give a shout out to my Nigerian peeps, because we know that there are over 55 countries in Africa and it may shift again. You can never truly prepare yourself to work with the other because you have 
done Peace Corps, you've read an article, you've watched a podcast, but I will say this, you will never attain cultural humility, cultural competency, doing this work as a clinician. When you look at your personal life and everyone looks like you and everything you consume is about you and your own worldview. The longer, the more, the deeper you delve into other people's stories and in other people's ways of being, then you're not confronting that work day one in session where you can easily devolve into voyeurism and tokenism because you've never thought about someone who was unlike you until they came and paid for your services. So be proactive about challenging yourself to get to know and be outside of those spaces. And not just when they are disenfranchised, but also when they're empowered. There's a lot of people who have relocated from the Midwest into Brooklyn, for example, and they um, have gentrified the communities. And a lot of them are not-for-profit workers. And they have tried their best to go into public schools and not-for-profit work. And if you're only working with people who are the downtrodden and you're like, yeah, I want to really work with shelter, women in shelters, then you are going to underserve a woman who is powerful the way Michelle Obama is powerful. So please think of it not just vertically, but horizontally. Think of it in the complexity of identities. Make sure that you are comfortable listening to someone with very heavily accented English, who was both literate in English in their language, as well as illiterate possibly in their own language and learning English because they have to work in under resourced spaces. That's what gives you the full identity and understanding of it. And so then you move past tropes, you move past stereotypes because you have this complex understanding of humans, which reflects how humans really are. And that would be what I would want to impart to my fellow clinicians and to also people who are seeking mental health don't feel discouraged that it can't match to who you are. You can find someone who can see you and really partner with you on your journey to mental well-being. Thank you so much, April. That is a perfect way to end this conversation. And I am so thankful for your time and for your wisdom and insight. And again, could talk to you for hours about this and I'm just so grateful for the time that you gave us. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Dave Emmert. Self-Studies is a podcast by Alma, a company dedicated to simplifying access to high-quality in-network mental health care for both consumers and clinicians. To learn more, visit helloalma.com.